Hello and welcome to another interview podcast from the blog of the Journal of the History of Ideas. I'm Simon Brown, a contributing editor at the JHI blog, and today I'm speaking with Eli Cook, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Haifa, about his new book, The Pricing of Progress, Economic Indicators and the Capitalization of American Life, out from Harvard Press in 2017. The book has been honored with the Morris D. Forkosh Book Prize from the Journal of the History of Ideas for the best first book in intellectual history, and with the annual book prize of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History for the best book in that field. And it's easy for anyone who's read the book to see why. In The Pricing of Progress, Cook lays out the story of how American businessmen, social reformers, politicians, and labor unions came to measure progress and advocate policy in the language of projected monetary gains at the expense of all other competing standards. He begins the story long before the advent of GDP with the market for land in 17th century England, and he takes the reader through account books of individual households in the 18th century, to price lists of enslaved people in the early 19th century, to the systematic theories of economists at the beginning of the 20th. Throughout, he shows how the rise of capitalism brought with it the monetary valuation of not only land, labor, or technology, but of everyday life itself. I started by asking how he came to his project through his studies in history and economics. And then I would cross over to the other side of the campus and I would study history. And one of my teachers was Michael Zakim, who was a great historian of capitalism, early America. And kind of began to study history of capitalism with him and I became just really, really interested in the history of economic thought, in the history of mostly just how quantification has been used uh, uh, both as a political tool, but also as a cultural tool uh, in, 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 you know, just kind of building up this world of, of economics and, and kind of what were the ramifications of all this and, and, and what did it mean, I guess, for the bigger picture of the rise of capitalism and the future. And you can see the, the influence of economic thinking throughout the book. And you mentioned studying the history of capitalism. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about your impressions of how intellectual history in general has played a role in the new history of capitalism that you talk a little bit about in the introduction? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. So I think, uh, save for like a few examples, like Michael Zakim in many ways and Jeffrey Sklansky, I think mostly the new kind of rise of history of capitalism has not been driven by intellectual historians. I think it's mostly been driven by, I guess, what you would call social historians. And I, and I would even say that, like, I think starting graduate school, there were definitely, you know, some people at Harvard who were in the program for the history of capitalism who didn't look down on ideas. They thought ideas married, mattered, but definitely there was this notion that we need to get to kind of the nitty gritty of materialism. And that's what kind of really drives history. And while I do definitely believe that you need to do that in order to understand, you know, how ideas matter, I was always kind of, you know, with one leg into the world of uh, intellectual history. And I think it's important because I would say that while I am a huge fan of the history of capitalism, obviously, and I see myself identify as a historian of capitalism, I definitely think that one of the kind of weaknesses in the last few years has been, it, it, it's funny, but it's been oftentimes these great books on the history of capitalism, and they don't actually try to define capitalism at all. Uh, they don't really try to kind of give their own interpretation of what, it, what, what they mean by that word. And, and I think that's, that's a problem. I think uh, if we want kind of uh, this term to really take off, to have like depth, to have meaning, we should be arguing. We should be basically having arguments. And I think a lot of those arguments are arguments that intellectual historians have had in the past and, and they have in the future. 
uh, what I call the ism arguments. You know, what what is an ism? Why is what what what? Uh, when did an ism begin? When did it end? And things like that. So um, so while I definitely am excited uh, about the direction that the history of capitalism in, I, I think I'm even more excited that really it's becoming more and more in the last few years. Uh, a, a subject for intellectual historians. And here I have to say specifically also economic thought. I think the history of economic thought for many years was kind of like a marginalized topic. I think people who did like, you know, heavy intellectual history looked down on economists and maybe rightfully so because they didn't see, you know, these economists as these great thinkers. And you're like, really, you're going to write about Paul Samuelson and not William James? <laughs> that That's not, you know, an intellectual. Um, so I definitely also think that there's uh, really interesting things happening in the world of intellectual history where more and more we're beginning to treat kind of businessmen as intellectuals, uh, economists as intellectuals. I mean, if you look at my book, most of the characters are not what you would consider, you know, traditional intellectuals. A lot of them are they're, they're writing in business journals. They're, they're city boosters. It's Alexander Hamilton. Um, so in that, that sense, I'm excited to marriage kind of these two kind of fields together. Uh, on one hand, make, I guess, history of capitalism more an intellectual history. On the other hand, make intellectual history more uh, from the bottoms up. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I can see it through the book where on the one hand, as you say, you deal a lot with uh, people like William Petty, Alexander Hamilton, uh, other economists, people who might be of interest to intellectual historians, and at the same time interested in account books and the kinds of te texts that you might find that social historians might be interested in too. And so it seems like a, you know, on the one hand, you are interested in the history of economic thought, and on the other hand, you're interested in the history of quantification. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in that sense, I think Today, we have to, you know, any good intellectual history or, or not any good, but I think there's a whole kind of rich vein of intellectual history that we need to tap into, which is kind of, I guess you would call it the intellectual history of everyday life. So it's like you say, it's the most, it's like, it's not, you know, these famous tracks or these, you know, important philosophers, but it's, uh, it's, it's account books, it's uh, financial magazines, it's uh, uh, railroad uh, uh, um, corporate reports. I think that, you know, that's an intellectual history. There are a lot of ideas in these corporate reports. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I totally, that is definitely what I was trying to do. And before we get into the, the narrative, I was wondering if you could talk about this concept that you introduce in the introduction of investmentality that you talk a lot about throughout the book. This seems to do a lot of work for your argument. I was wondering if before we get into the narrative, if you could talk about what you mean by investmentality and why it matters. Uh, yeah, so so first of all, to get back to, this links to my other kind of comment before about defining capitalism. So I think it's really important for historians of ca capitalism to, to be very clear what they mean when they use that word. And for me, uh, I had been frustrated uh, for many years because I felt that there were some historians, uh, not only, and actually this is ironic because I think they actually got this maybe from economists, who basically equated markets with capitalism. So they saw market societies, they saw societies with markets, with commodities, with trade, with money, with exchange, and they were like, ah, there's capitalism. And for me, that's not the case. Uh, one of the things I try to show in the book is that the United States, for instance, I would argue, uh, was a fairly commodified market society uh, by the turn of the 19th century. I don't think you can call it a capitalist society. And one of the reasons I argue that is precisely this gets to uh, this word investmentality. So for me, kind of the engine that drives capitalism, what makes it unique, uh, what changes it from other forms of previous forms of just market exchange is the act of investment. And to get to the definition of how I 
is investmentality. It's imagining the world or imagining parts of the world, whether it's human beings, whether it's animals, whether it's nature, whether it's time, whether it's uh, uh, cultural uh, productions, whether it's technological inventions, whatever it is, you imagine everything as an investment. And what I mean by that basically is that you begin to imagine these things as how much income they're going to generate for you in the future so there's a very kind of futurist minded aspect to this but also kind of like an aspect of you know i'm going to look at you know this human being i'm going to look at this uh, 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 piece of nature and i just need to know you know how much money is it going to turn out every year and i think there's a very big difference between that and i sometimes also use the word capitalization to define that as opposed to commodification and I think there's a really important difference between commodification and capitalization, between markets and uh, investment. And what I'm trying to get out basically is this, this investmentality, this imagining the world as one big giant capitalized investment, that's what brings the rise of what this book is basically about, which is the rise of modern economic indicators, what we now call GDP. Okay, great. And so the, the story you begin to tell, to tell that story, uh, though you focus on the United States, on, on the American version of this story, it begins in England, particularly in the 17th century, and you particularly are interested in the work of William Petty. So could you tell us why the story begins in the 17th century, and what happens then that really begins this trajectory that you follow throughout? Yeah, so this, so I'm an Americanist. I was trained as an American historian, and this was actually one of the tougher decisions I had to make in the book. Am I going to really do a whole chapter on William Petty. Uh, the dissertation didn't have that, but um, after a lot of thinking, I decided I need to do this. Uh, so the importance of William Petty, that's actually something that I think everyone knows about in many ways. So if you look at even the shortest kind of little article that someone writes or on the books that have come out in recent years on GDP, and I have to say, there have been a lot of books in the last few years on GDP, and all these books, and this is why I wanted to write my own book, all these books focus mostly on the 20th century. I'd even say they focus mostly on the second half of the 20th century. But almost all of them will have a paragraph about William Petty and political arithmetic and 17th century, and, and rightfully so, because it's very clear to anybody who's even looked at this stuff that there is clearly William Petty in the uh, mid-17th century in England is doing what we, we, we now call national income accounting. Uh, but for me, the real kicker, the reason I decided, you know what, I have to turn it into a chapter, is actually because my second chapter is on Alexander Hamilton and his kind of use of this kind of way of imagining the world and quantifying the world. And I went to his journal, and one of his like most amazing sources is this little journal he was carrying with him during the war. And while he's carrying this journal, he's also lugging around this uh, two-volume set of uh, this uh, Encyclopedia of Commerce from the 18th century. And I began to uh, basically read his notes his his what he's taking notes of in this encyclopedia and i traced it back to the encyclopedia and and then i clearly it came to me it was very clear that in the late 18th century uh, alexander hamilton was really really influenced by william petty and for me that was like that's it i have to go back to the 17th century i gotta do i gotta do william petty um and as far as just you know what 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 really for me um what made William Petty so exciting to write about is that there has been a lot written on William Petty, but usually not from the point of view of the history of capitalism. Uh, usually when people have written about William Petty, and, and you can totally understand them, it's been written more from the history of science, you know, this political arithmetic, this rise of you know, this no, uh, Baconian way of thinking about, about empiricism and things like that. Uh, maybe they would also throw in some English politics. Uh, but for me, the real riddle of that first chapter was, why is it suddenly in 1662 
that William Petty writes this incredible uh, document in which he not only essentially invents, invents national income accounting, but he also uh, calculates the value of man. I mean, he literally, and this again gets back to this idea of investmentality, he imagines human beings as these like capital investments. He calculates how much money they earn the kingdom every year, and then he literally capitalizes that into a value, taking future kind of flows and turning them into what economists would t today call net present worth, uh, net present value. And so um, that was the riddle. And to me, it took me back to the 17th century and to the real changes that were happening in, in uh, English land. Um, so basically, my argument in the first chapter is that you can't understand the rise of political arithmetic or William Petty in the 17th century without understanding uh, the transformation of land into an economic investment. Again, so it's like this investmentality begins with land and how people, especially uh, due to processes like enclosure, but also urbanization, they began to imagine their land as these income generating assets. And that in, in turn is what propels William Petty eventually to imagine everything, his entire world around him as an income generating asset. As a person who studies 17th century England and William Petty in part, I'm heartened that you're you're led to this story into the 17th century. I always think that more stories can begin in the 17th century. And it's interesting because you trace the influence of Petty and his political arithmetic and his accounting to Alexander Hamilton in the 18th century. But as we move to America and as your story moves to America, it seems that his ideas about capitalization and accounting find some resistance. So they, they're not an easy transfer from England in the 17th century to America, say, in the 18th century. And can you talk a little bit about why America was different and why Petty's kinds of accounting ideas don't immediately catch on with everyone? That, that's a great question, because it really gets to one of the things that I was stressing in the book, and that is that England in the 17th and certainly in the 18th capitalist society and the United States in the 18th century essentially is not. And the big difference there, it goes back to the land. So the uh, most simplest way of thinking about this, in England, by the, by, by the late 18th century, uh, about 25% of, uh, sorry, about 75% of the land is owned by 25% of the people. And therefore, that really changes all of society. So just to give kind of like a sense of when William Petty uh, did his uh, political arithmetic, his national income accounting, so for instance, he was imagining uh, workers as wage laborers. Uh, and this made sense to him. And he was also imagining a world where most people had to, uh, in order to eat, in order to survive, had to enter into the market and, and purchase the basic necessities. Uh, fast forward to uh, America at the end of the 18th century when, uh, when Alexander Hamilton writing, that's simply not the case. Uh, at, at that point, still, most of the American people are uh, directly eating the food that they grow. And they're not, there is no rent because most of them are working the land that they own. So no wages, no rent. Anyone who knows kind of early classical economics knows there's this kind of triangle of society that's, uh, you know, the, the aristocrats earn the rent, the, the entrepreneurs earn the profits, and the farmers are, and the workers own the wages. Uh, none of those people actually exist in the United States, or if you want to think of it another way, all of them are collapsed into a single person, the kind of, you know, uh, yeoman farmer. So, uh, so definitely there was a tremendous amount of pushback and I argue in the book that it really has to do with the, with the very different economic developments uh, between England and the United States. And I guess you could think of it this way, that the story of the rise of economic indicators in the United States in the 19th century is how slowly uh, the United States becomes more and more 
uh, capitalist. It becomes to look more and more like England, and therefore by the mid-19th century, uh, then people are already beginning to think of the world in similar ways, and uh, all those uh, economic indicators like those that Alexander Hamilton tried to develop, uh, well, and he failed, now, now they're beginning to really uh, grasp onto uh, people's imaginations, and they're beginning to have a real relevance in American life. Yeah, and so I think in a, we'll get to this topic more substantially in a in a minute. But what's interesting is that there seems to be a kind of a, an intermediary between the petty version and the early American version, and that is in your discussion of Hamilton and particularly of plantation slavery in America and in the Caribbean, and how that produces that condition produces. A particular way of looking at labor and accounting and pricing. So, can you say a little bit about how that kind of plantation slavery to which Hamilton was so exposed may have informed the way he looked at the pricing of labor or the pricing of progress in general? So, first of all, I have to say I'm very excited because what you just said about the Caribbean being kind of the bridge between uh, England and America—that's exactly how I was imagining it. And just—it's exciting when you know. You have people who get you get your argument, so uh, that's exactly it. Um, so for me, another riddle, right? So Alexander Hamilton, he's writing his report of manufactories in 1791. He sends out all these reports to all these different Americans, asking them basically to do political arithmetic. You know, tell me how much money does your farm earn in a year? Tell me how much does your workers earn in a year? Could you value your land? All these different questions. And slowly the returns come in, and nobody can answer his questions because of what I just said, all the different reasons that the American Yomer farmer was nothing like kind of like the, the English uh, land investor. Uh, and then my question is, well, wait a minute. Why does Alexander Hamilton see the world like this? Why was Alexander Hamilton so excited about William Petty? Why does he know, uh, you know, uh, why do these ideas resonate so much with him? And it, it hit me, you know, Alexander Hamilton is not American. He did not grow up in the United States. He grew up uh, on St. Croix. Uh, an, ally, an island that uh, was made up of 95% of the people were slaves. And more importantly, or not more importantly, but uh, it, to make it even, even more crucial, uh, St. Croix itself was essentially one giant economic investment. So it, an absentee investment uh, to, to, to make it even more important. So, you know, most of the people who earned, who owned the land uh, on St. Croix, on this island, uh, lived back in England, and they viewed this place as investment. And essentially, uh, for Alexander Hamilton growing up there, this was about as extreme a market society, or I would say capitalist society, as you could possibly see. Uh, unlike, you know, in the United States, this is a place where almost everything uh, uh, that people ate was, in fact, coming through the market because they were such a monoculture that focused only on sugar. And also, if you look at how these plantations were run, uh, the enormous amount of fixed costs, the enormous amount of capital investments that went into these uh, plantations. And last but not least, if you just look at how the way people talked about these plantations, how they tried to sell these plantations, how they tried to write about these plantations, it's very clear that the next generation, I guess you could say after William Petty, of people who were kind of carrying the torch, carrying the flame of this pricing of progress, uh, were often plantation owners. Uh, and they're you know, talking about the fact how every single slave earns them 
uh, 30 pounds a year. And again, this is very important. This is not commodification. He's, they're not saying, oh, a slave uh, costs in the market 20 pounds. No, no, this is something else. This is something I really try to emphasize in the book. This is the idea of how much income do they generate in a year. It's this, this idea of a flow. You know, and again, this is how you imagine uh, somebody if you're looking at him as an asset, not just as a commodity. And that's exactly what they're doing with their land, with their labor. They're really looking at all of these things and measuring them according to how much income they can generate annually which is basically what GDP is later, a measure of annual income. And so, um, and then and then it crosses into the United States, but in places in the 18th century where I really see this kind of pricing of progress, this investmentality, is in South Carolina, uh, until Alexander Hamilton, that is. And that doesn't surprise me again, because South Carolina is by far the most kind of Caribbean-like of all the colonies, and the rice uh, plantations are very similar uh, to the um, sugar plantations of the Caribbean. So, so I definitely think that's the key bridge. I'll just say one more thing about this, though, that uh, tobacco slavery in Virginia, for instance, was a little bit different, uh, or a lot different, actually. And so therefore, I don't actually see the kind of pricing of progress involving uh, there uh, as much as I do in kind of the sugar and in the uh, rice plantation. So um, there's a story here, definitely, in which the Caribbean plays a really crucial bridge uh, between England and the United States. And so the story of slavery and its importance to the trajectory of the story that you're accounting, that you're, that you're giving, will appear again in the middle of the 19th century in a very important way. But before we get to that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about part of your story that, in a sense, doesn't get picked up later, and that's the story of moral statistics that you talk about in the early 19th century. So before there's a big transformation that you'll talk about in the middle of the 19th century, you talk about a kind of accounting and a kind of quantification that is not entirely monetary, and it is the quantification oh, yeah. of certain moral conditions. So I was wondering if you could just talk about what these moral statistics are and kind of what happens to them in the process of the pricing of so many standards. Yeah, so um, so so one of the things that was really important to me in this book is to always show how throughout the entire book, like this pricing of progress, there's always pushback. And uh, the other thing I wanted to show throughout the book is how really this is an idea that is born on the margins of society. Even William Petty, I have to say, no one really takes his statistics that seriously. And mm. he's mocked. I mean, there's a great uh, satire by Jonathan Swift where he says, oh, a child is worth about two pounds. But if I cook him as a nice uh, ragu, maybe he'll be worth three pounds. So, you know, just, just kind mm -hmm. of, you know, everyone sees it as, as almost ridiculous in a way. Uh, for a very long time. I mean, for a very long time, the idea that we can imagine people, nature, everything is just income generating assets was considered deplorable or just weird and, and it didn't catch on. Um, and so it's very important to me to also show that uh, there was also this very, very rich tradition of social quantification that existed before these economic indicators moved from the margins to the center. And without a doubt, at the center of that kind of social quantification world, were what, uh, uh, what are called moral statistics. That's a term that's basically invented uh, in the 1820s or so around then in, in France and then in England and Germany, and then it crosses over to the United States. And moral statistics, uh, in many ways, could not be more different uh, than the pricing of progress or economic indicators. Because if you look at moral statistics, uh, the things that they measure are things like prostitution, uh, uh, crime rates, incarceration rates, suicide rates, 
uh, life expectancy, uh, things like, you know, uh, vices, and we'll get to a second about, you know, there's a, clearly a very kind of governmentality Foucault angle here. Uh, what else am I thinking of? Uh, libraries, um, all sorts of different metrics. And what makes them all unique, I argue, is that all of these moral statistics, and we shouldn't romanticize them. As I argue in the book, these are bourgeois inventions designed mostly to kind of control or try to control and discipline uh, workers. But nevertheless, these moral statistics, the measure of unit here is not dollars and cents. It's uh, what I write in the book, is it's bodies and minds, essentially. It's, and I do think that moral statistics at their core are, moral statistics, are statistics that look to measure the spiritual, the physical, the mental, the social condition of human beings. Uh, and that, to me, is is actually there's. Uh, I try to I basically argue in the book that there's something very important that gets lost when uh, we make the transition in the mid 19th century from these moral statistics uh, to uh, economic indicators. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that moral statistics uh, disappear. Certainly, we still hear today about incarceration rates in the United States. But my argument basically is that well, they used to be in the center, they moved to the margins, and the economic indicators, which used to be on the margins, they moved to the center. And today, if you're going to open a newspaper, chances are you're not going to see you know New York Times top uh, news, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, insane asylum <laughs> uh, population goes up by three percent, right? That's not something you're going to see. That's certainly something you saw in the 1840s, uh, because they really felt that things like mental health were a really, really important measure of whether your society is doing well or not. Yeah, it strikes me as interesting because we might say that even in the present day, people might say, well, look, I support funding for literacy programs or something along those lines and say, well, I really do just care about the literacy. But in order to make an effective political argument, I have to articulate it as this is the economic benefits of, say, encouraging literacy or or childhood development or something like that. And so it seems that there is an interesting turning point, even though people still care about these, you might say, moral conditions. They now say, in order to make these effective, we need to articulate them before the public sphere in the language of prices and economic benefits. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is definitely one of the key points uh, later in the book that I try to make. I use the example, for instance, of someone like Irving Fisher and other people where they had all sorts of different reforms. And, and, they, and, and Irving Fisher, you know, for instance, he really, really wants to um, uh, have the government invest in health care. And he says uh, – so he writes this, you know, New York Times article where he prices the baby at $90. Yeah. And then he shows that, you know – because the baby is worth $90, he's worth saving. And look at all this money the government would save if they just, you know, treated babies uh, and gave them better health care and they wouldn't die of disease. And he gets all these letters from all these people who are like, oh, my God, what are you doing? How can you price babies? And Irving Fisher writes back and he says, listen, you know, I tried it your way. I tried to, you know, convince uh, um, the – you know, the Rockefeller Foundation or American congressmen that, you know, there was this horrible moral stain on American society where these babies were dying. But guess what? It didn't work. Uh, and here this gets a really important argument in my book, which is basically that no, it, never is there a moment where like all of Americans really kind of, I would say, drink the Kool-Aid of the economic mm -hmm. indicators. But what definitely does happen is that you see elites and elite institutions begin to really, really kind of turn and put these uh, figures at their center. And exactly as you were mentioning, this is what often makes people uh, shift their arguments uh, from arguments about, you know, literacy matters because we want people to be critical thinkers 
into, you know, what I would call now the human capital argument, right? And this gets back to capitalization, right? So anybody who's an American or I, I'm guessing English also academic institution knows that today in order to kind of prove that your university or your college is, is worthwhile, you know, they're going to measure uh, how much money your graduates make because there's this idea that, you know, education now, it's not just about instilling or it's not even mostly about instilling, you know, critical thinking in people or getting them to learn so that they'll be able to kind of understand the world in a better way. No, it's about increasing their productivity, increasing their human capital, and so that they can then go out into the world and uh, increase increase their market productivity and and create more growth. So, so definitely, I, I totally agree with you, um, it, it, and that's exactly how I tried to frame it in the book. It, the real power here, the real kind of shift uh, to the center, is not always with all the people, but it definitely is with a certain group of very powerful people. Yeah, and so that shift in which the powerful and those who hold power in important institutions come to accept a certain kind of pricing as the standard, in your account, this shift seems to happen in the middle of the 19th century, and particularly around the 1850s, kind of in the lead up to and in the aftermath of the American Civil War. Can you tell us a little bit about how that transition begins to solidify uh, an elite acceptance of pricing of progress as the way to measure to, to measure policy. Yeah, so so basically, I one of the ways. So I, I I started writing a book on how Americans value progress, and I realized that a really rich way to look at how Americans quantify and value progress is to look at the debates between the North and the South. Because when the North and the South they're arguing, they obviously they often want to prove to the other side that their society is better, and then they'll you know use statistics in order to make their argument. And what I found was that in the 1820s, the 1830s, pretty much throughout the 1840s, the dominant, uh, the dominant form of statistics used in these arguments on the side of the North and the South are moral statistics. Uh, people in the North are arguing that the North is better because it has more scholars, it has more libraries, its literacy rates are higher. On the other hand, you have someone like uh, uh, John Calhoun, you know, one of the key ideological forces in the in kind of arguing that slavery is good, and he's using these mor moral statistics, albeit cynically, but still he thinks that the way to win the argument is through moral statistics, and he's showing, oh, but look at you, you look at the prison rates of African Americans. And also, uh, there's a famous story about how in the 1840s, there's a mistake in the census of how many insane African-Americans are in the North. And so they leap on that, and they argue, look, uh, freeing the blacks in the North, uh, uh, that, made, uh, that made them go insane, uh, and their condition has deteriorated. Um, and then, as I enter the 1850s, I see a pretty sudden shift um, with, with the real turning point happening in 1857 with Hinton Helper, who writes this best-selling book, anti-slavery book, and the entire book, and he even says it in the introduction, he, says, he basically says, you know, I don't care about the condition of the blacks. This is an immoral argument. All I'm going to do throughout this whole book is show you indicator after indicator after indicator that, that slavery is bad because it's not productive, because it's not profitable, because you could get more bang for your buck. So essentially sometime in the mid-1850s, I feel, the sectional debates between the North and the South shift from moral statistics to economic indicators. And what's interesting is that they happen both in the North and in the South. So if you look at the what's called the Cotton is King uh, literature, which is you know a lot of literature that's coming out of the South, trying to you know show the American people why slavery is important, and they don't even bother trying to make a moral argument or try to make an argument that you know the, the condition of the slaves is important. 
this gets back to my previous argument. You know, moral statistics, they put human beings at the center. And therefore, even John Calhoun, a despicable slaveholder, felt in the 1830s or 40s that the way to legitimize the South was to show that the condition of the African Americans was getting better. Whereas by the 1850s, when it moves not to the human beings, but to how much money they can produce, uh, what, what we see is that, you know, people in the South are saying, uh, yeah, the slavery is important because, you know, cotton made us $21 million last year annually. So, um, so yeah, it's a pretty striking shift in both the North and the South. And then I try to also explain why this shift happens in the, in the mid-19th century. But I will just say one last thing. It's a shift among elites. I, that's a very important point I want to make. It's not that everybody suddenly in the 1850s. Uh, it's mostly uh, – so Hinton Helper, for instance, is a great example of this. The people who really get excited about Hinton Helper – are rich New York businessmen and uh, American uh, politicians in the North. It really is kind of like an elite uh, uh, argument to kind of turn to uh, focusing on the, on the economic indicators. And that helps account for the future of this argument as it goes into the later 19th century. And so by the later 19th century, you're talking about how the division over measuring progress moves somewhat from the north-south divide to maybe you could kind of begin to say a divide between, on the one hand, certain kinds of labor unions and certain kinds of social reformers against often business interests and other kinds of labor unions. And this is particularly around the measurement of real wages and around consumer, consumer goods. So mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about how the debate shifts in the later 19th century and what it looks like when it's what it looks like when it's not between elite and elite, but between other yeah. groups? That, yeah, so exactly. So the 1850s, you have this kind of shift in elites, uh, but they haven't won over the American people just yet. Absolutely not. And essentially, I look at the Gilded Age era from the 1870s to around the 1890s as an era of a real class battle. It's a battleground, a statistical battle. I even think that's the name of that chapter, where you have these two groups uh, of Americans uh, who are literally fighting over uh, the means of quantification, I guess you could call it. So there are these bureaus of labor statistics that are founded uh, in the United States after the Civil War. And at first, oftentimes, they're controlled by labor unions and labor reformers. And then there's this battle, this political battle, over what they're going to count and most of the labor unions lose their power, and it moves to uh, uh, mostly what you were saying, business interests interest and so forth. And, and what I look at in that chapter is really how very different the economic indicators of these two groups uh, uh, are interested in. So the labor reformers are oftentimes still have this kind of moral statistical tradition. In other words, they really want to measure the condition of the workers and not just how much they produce. And then the other thing is also they're interested in distribution. They're interested in inequality. They're interested in measuring exploitation. Uh, here, the Knights of Labor play a very important role. Uh, it, it's kind of forgotten, but if you look at kind of the Knights of Labor, this giant labor movement that emerges in the 1870s and 1880s in the United States, they were very statistically minded. I think in their first kind of, you know, constitution, one of the third or fourth kind of preambles is how they really need to create these bureaus of statistics that'll measure, you know, the condition of the worker and his moral degradation, all these different kind of very producerist, uh, what Eric Foner would call free labor ideas. And um, so they develop all these very interesting uh, indicators 
uh, in order to measure these kind of things. And, and of course, the business interests are horrified. They're just horrified of this, especially in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, uh, shows measures about inequality. It shows measures about uh, exploitation. And it's really creating a lot of trouble for the manufacturing interests in the state. And so in a power move, I would say, pretty uh, basic power move, they managed to kick those uh, reformers out and bring in their own men. Uh, and then I talk about kind of who these men are. Often they come from business, they come from a business background, and basically what they do is they kind of take their kind of the investmentality vision that they had developed in their businesses, and they begin to institutionalize these visions in the American statistical state. So someone like Edward Atkinson is a perfect example of this. And then one of the biggest things they look to measure is not you know, the condition of the worker in the sense of how much is he earning, uh, how much is he getting screwed over, what are the profits. Uh, instead of that, they really begin to only look at one thing, and that's called the cost of living. This is something that really interests them. And it's actually you really see how they're imagining not only uh, – they're imagining people almost as machines. And this cost of living, this idea, which today it's taken a different kind of turn. But back then, this cost of living was, was an idea of manufacturers, okay, how much uh, food do I need to give people? How much you know, housing, how much clothing, how much do I need to pay people in order to keep them alive and productive enough so they can enter the factory each day? And this is something that really interested Americans because they felt – the American business interests because they felt that the cost of living uh, was going up in these years and that they need to make sure that the cost of living doesn't go up and, and all these different arguments about that. Um, so, so definitely there was a very politicized battle over the economic indicators in the 19th century. Uh, and, and essentially I would say that in more times than not, not always, uh, the populace, for instance, the populist farmers in the 1890s, they made some serious gains where for the first time debt uh, statistics were beginning to be collected. But in, in general, more times than not, it was these business, business interests that kind of won the day and they began to control the bureaucratic collection of economic indicators in the United States. It's, it fits within a kind of theme that runs, I think, throughout the book, which is to say that labor becomes a central battleground over these debates. And it seems both with your discussion about plantation slavery and then later the sectionalism of the Civil War and then by the end of the 19th century debates about how to measure, measure, measure wages and about the legitimacy of wage labor in general, it seems like you're recentering labor as the central place in which these debates take place. Do you think that's do you think that that's a, a a commonality that you can trace throughout the entirety of your argument or do you think that there's enough divisions that this that these are all quite separate debates? No, that that's a great question. Um, no, I do think you have some there. Like, so another way of framing kind of like these debates in the end of the 19th century was between this producerist vision and a consumerist vision. Mm -hmm. So um, absolutely the, the kind of the labor reformers in the uh, late 19th century, the labor unions, they were interested in creating these producerist statistics, which would mean basically what I said before. It meant that you didn't only care you know, how much people uh, uh, earned, how much people consumed, could they buy the shoes or not, but you really cared in general, you know, how much money were they making as opposed to uh, the boss? You know, there was a very politicized kind of way of calculating producer statistics, and this goes back to an old American tradition about, you know, the fruits, the getting the fruits of our labor, and, and, and you know, the idea that I, I, earn a, I should earn a full return uh, to the fruits of my labor. Uh, whereas I argue that in the night, at the end of the 19th century, uh, these business interests, 
and I have to say, parts of the labor movement itself uh, shift to a more consumerist version, which uh, is usually a version which focuses more on uh, ideas of uh, the good life as being measured in how many uh, commodities I can produce. So, so definitely in that sense, a labor plays a really important uh, role, and it's a shifting turn. And then the other thing I'll just say that you were talking about kind of what goes through my entire argument going back to slavery, there's definitely you know a very central part in my book, which is about not just investmentality in general, not just capitalization in general, but human investmentality, human capitalization. And, and from, you know, a William Petty to Irving Fisher, who I mentioned, the $90 baby, you can definitely trace a very important thread throughout the rise of these modern economic indicators, which they begin to imagine human beings and therefore labor as an investment. And what they do in that case oftentimes is not only do they imagine human beings as labor in the sense that they want to know how much money they can churn out every year, but they also want to know then what their actual value is. How much is a human being worth? Uh, and, and, and as opposed to, you know, in previous times, the only way a capitalist can imagine the value of something is to capitalize it, which means he has to take, you know, how much is this worker going to earn me in the next 30, 40 years? And then I need to think, you know, how much I need to feed him? What are his costs? These are the kind of calculations that Irving Fisher does. This is why, and, and Edward Atkinson, they're very interested, I guess you could say, in the inputs and the outputs of the human body itself. And, 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 and the reason they're doing this is because they're really interested in kind of getting to, like, the value of man. This is definitely something that pretty much appears, and I think, in almost every chapter of my book. Yeah, and I think it leads us nicely to a discussion of Irving Fisher, who, who you talk about at length in your discussion of the early 20th century around what you might call progressive social reforms and the and also around new kinds of economic thinking in that period. And one of the arguments you make is that Irving Fisher, with his plans to put prices on the value of uh, a human child, among other things, you argue that his way of looking at economics and the valuation of people does not easily fall within a kind of liberal or conservative political division, and that rather he inaugurates, represents, a new moment when people from many sides of the political spectrum engage in this kind of in this kind of evaluation. So I'm wondering, can you tell us about why it is that Fisher is so exemplary and so and so what transcends what we would think of as a typical political division? Yeah, so I think just telling Irving Fisher's story kind of makes this point for itself. So Irving Fisher hates labor unions. He really can't stand them. He believes in the rule of experts. He literally says, you know, that the world should be run by economists. He really has no patience for democracy at all. Uh, he really believes that people like him should run the world. Um, he also uh, hates socialists. He hates people who focus on economic distribution. He really, uh, there is a moment in his life where he does focus on inequality after, but for most of his career, he believes that that's not the important question, what matters. And again, this gets to a central theme of the entire book is, is productivity at large, uh, you know, uh, uh, how much uh, uh, growth there is. But on the other hand, Irving Fisher wanted you. And the way you know, and Irving Fisher uh, wanted, you know, pretty robust government investment. And the way Irving Fisher like argued for universal healthcare, I think, shows just how it's hard, you know, to to this whole vision of the pricing of progress. It's very hard to, you know, to just pigeonhole it into conservative or liberal. So, 
Irving Fisher, as I mentioned before, uh, prices babies at $90. He prices children at like $500. He does everybody. And, and he does all this usually in order to make arguments for very progressive reforms. Uh, he's arguing for tuberculosis uh, uh, treatment. He's arguing for government health care. Uh, he's arguing for world peace. Uh, Irving Fisher prices the cost of World War One at like I forget the number, but it's like two hundred billion dollars. And he does this because he believes in world peace. So, so in many ways, you can see that Irving Fisher is is is. I like I, the book essentially ends with him for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons I like to end with Fisher is because he's just such a, a interesting character. And that, as you say, he doesn't really fall on one side or another. But what defines him? What defines his vision? is this pricing of progress. Um, and uh, half of the chapter focuses on his work as a really ingenious neoclassical economist. He's essentially the most important, I would argue, neoclassical economist in American history. And I think uh, a lot of the ideas that Milton Friedman are given credit for uh, are actually ideas that Irving Fisher, like monetarism, or things that Irving Fisher thought of first. Uh, but, but but just more generally, he he his dissertation at Yale, the whole, um, bro, the whole goal of that uh, dissertation is to show why prices uh, can be equated with value. In other words, why we can measure society in units of money. And as opposed to, you know, previous classical economists who focused, focused kind of more on this like objective labor theory of value, Irving Fisher turns to this very subjective idea that prices are these wonderful things that take into account all of our wants and desires. And therefore, they really do reflect uh, uh, the human condition. And, and so in that sense, I think he encapsulates not only uh, the fact that you can't pigeonhole this into a liberal story, a conservative story, because today everyone does the pricing of progress from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, uh, but also um, this idea that uh, the rise of you know this new form of neoclassical economics that I really do think in many ways um, uh, has not give, been given enough uh, uh, focus by intellectual historians. Uh, I think one of the things that they've missed out on is how these neoclassical economists have really, really interesting ideas uh, and if you scrape uh, behind the math, and it's a little intimidating, uh, you see that most of the ideas that they're thinking about are things that intellectual historians would be very interested in. Yeah, uh, and Fisher is an interesting person to really, in many ways, end on, large part because, as you say, you cite the thinkers and intellectuals now who all cite him as an authority, and it ranges over quite a political spectrum now. I mean, people like Paul Krugman, but on the other hand, people like Milton Friedman and others. So it's interesting to think about him as as one of the last uh, prominent voices in the story that sets sets the stage for the present. And you, you end the book really talking about the popularization of this concept of human capital, which becomes articulated in the 1950s and the 1960s as a very important as a very important concept in economics do you think there's a kind of the way to end your story do you think human capital is the concept that all of this has in some sense been informing that it's a it's the way of describing the entire story you've been telling and now we have a very clear word for it and this is kind of where the story ends by the middle of the 20th century yeah, actually, I, I think I, I might agree with that. Um, uh, I guess for me, so just to give, give a sense of what human capital, what, what are the stakes of this idea? So until about 10 years ago, because now very interesting things are happening in neoclassical economics, but until about 10 years ago, human capital for the last 40 years was not only the way that economists kind of imagined human beings and measured their value, but it also was the central argument for explaining inequality. Uh, the idea was that 
uh, people uh, invest in human capital through things like school. And again, notice the investmentality, imagining everything as an investment. So when you go to college, uh, when you take a training class, uh, when you learn to program, what you're doing is you're investing in yourself, a term that is very much, you know, out of this idea of uh, human capitalization. And, and then this investment that you make in yourself uh, earns a return because it's an investment and that return are your wages uh, or your income and um, so what the argument is is that people who invest a lot in themselves people who you know work hard and 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 and, and go to university and so forth uh, their wages their income uh, reflects their productivity which in turn reflects uh, their human uh, investment and this is a for me a a very dubious idea because it's an idea essentially that argues that everybody earns what they contribute. Uh, and there are definitely a lot of neoclassical economists who have pushed back on that. But I really do think that it kind of encapsulates our whole story in many ways because it shows not only how these uh, forms of quantification can be used to uh, price people in a certain way and measure them only in accordance to how much income they generate, but it also it, it becomes an issue of valuation. We begin to value people according to their income. So I think I have a line at the end of the book about how you know people's self worth, uh, uh, people's net worth becomes their self worth. This I, and I think this is an idea that has trickled down deep into the American psyche, uh, and 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 it really is an idea that prices equal value. The market is essentially fair. Income reflects value, and therefore, if I'm rich, that means I'm a valuable person, and if I'm poor, I, I'm not. And I and I think that is a very important point that I try to make in the book. And then the other one I would just say, as far as just you know ideas that encapsulate it is uh, is the idea of GDP. So um, in the last few years, there have been like six books written on GDP. And as I mentioned before, most of them start in the 1930s. And what I really, um, I love these books. They're really great books. Uh, but usually they focus on things like expertise, the rise of macroeconomics, um, the rise of the state playing a role after the Great Depression in you know calculating things like uh, a national income accounting. And I think these things are all true. But I think I purposely do the opposite in my book. I purposely end right before the invention of GDP because what I really want to show at the end of the day is that this rise of pricing with progress, uh, it's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence. It's not something that emerges out of you know, economics departments. It's essentially emerging out of the rise of capitalism. And one of the things I try to show throughout the book is that wherever you have uh, you know, big, massive capital investments, that's where you begin to see this investmentality uh, cropping up. Uh, and just so to end, I, I guess I would say as far as, you know, what I'm trying to say there is that there's this culture today, which I, again, I admire, which talks about new metrics. You know, let's bring back the old metrics. Let's bring back the moral statistics. Let's bring back the ha happiness indices and, or things like that. Well, not bring back. Those are new. Um, and I end my book by arguing that while I really am all for, you know, a plurality of indices, it's not a coincidence that these economic indicators have so much power in our world. We live in a capitalist society. And if you want to change, you know, the metrics, I don't think you can just change the metrics. You actually have to, you know, begin to really think about how uh, uh, resources are allocated in a capitalist society, how society is organized, uh, how profit plays such an important role, how growth plays an important role. Um, and so you can't just, you know, snap your fingers and come up with a new metric. I think that's a great summary of the stakes of, of your project in which you show the quantification side on the one hand, but also show the social history on the other and the actual conditions under which people are working. So I wonder then if you could tell us 
what you're working on now and if you have any upcoming projects. Yeah, yeah. No, so um, so I've always imagined, uh, speaking of intellectual historians, I've always uh, really admired uh, Dan Rogers and especially the fact that I think Dan Rogers never wrote two books in the same era. So I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter a brave new world. And so my new project that I'm working on now is on the, the 1970s and 1980s. And it's on the idea of choice, uh, specifically uh, on the idea of uh, 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 this duality that I think choice plays in our everyday lives and the idea of choice. On one hand, uh, choice is the epitome of freedom, I think, by the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Free to Choose, obviously, Milton Friedman's famous book uh, encapsulates that idea and, and this idea you know, that the way to be free is, is through choice. Um, and then the other thing that I'm really interested in, on the other hand, is that oftentimes in this new kind of neoliberal, if you want to use that term, society that we live in, uh, choice is oftentimes the way that we're monitored. It's the way that we're disciplined. It's the way it's, we're controlled. Uh, so there's this idea that I actually borrowed from behavioral economists. It's called choice architects. It's the people who actually get to build our choices, the menu makers, <laughs> if you will. And so what I'm really interested in is just the power dynamics and the ideas behind these ideas of choice. Now, on one hand, it, it, choice really does, you know, give us freedom. Uh, we get to choose, you know, our jobs and we get to choose where we want to live and we get to choose a lot of things in some ways. But on the other hand, these kind of bigger structures, these bigger choice, choice architects that in many ways are using our choices to kind of, I guess I would say, funnel us or direct us. I don't know. I'm still working on it <laughs> uh, into certain, you know, uh, uh, down certain lanes, I guess you could say certain life lanes. So, so yeah, so choice, the idea of choice is kind of my, my new project, I guess. Okay, great. Well, we will look forward to it. And I look forward to talking more about, about the choice book and about your future work.